HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. So on this episode of Soul by Todd Richards, I have a great friend. Uh, I call him a youngin uh, because he's definitely younger than me. Uh, Greg Collier on our podcast this week, and a little history about Greg. You know, he has this wonderful uh, breakfast spot called the Yoke Club in Charlotte. But his latest venture, Leah Louise, along with his wife Sabrina, who I can definitely tell you is the better of the two. She's the better half in that relationship. Um, but Leah and Louise is called a modern juke joint and it's the latest concept from james beard nominated uh chef gregory collier uh the menu features modern interpretations of southern classics that honor mississippi river valley foodways that include memphis jackson mississippi and new orleans so youngin uh greg chef welcome to the show I appreciate you having me, OG, man. Let you call me Youngin as long as you need to. Yeah, well, you know, I can call you Youngin uh, before, but when you have two restaurants, that kind of takes you out of the Youngin uh, category. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, because running two definitely uh, requires to have some experience as well as some uh, some, some intestinal uh, fortitude in order to do two at the same time. So you have uh, left the Youngin, uh, but I still put you over my knee. If that it makes you feel any any. <laughs> Any 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 better, you know? <laughs> I right, look, I'll take it, man. I'll take it. Uh, so what's going on? You are in Charlotte, um, and but that's not where you're from. Where are you from originally? Again, um, born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, you know, I know you from Chicago, so it's 
like uh, I, I've always kind of been your little brother because I always see Chicago as kind of big brother to Memphis anyway. So, uh, you know, we, uh, those similarities kind of run through the Mississippi River. Uh, what do you, what kind of food did you eat there? Oh, uh, so it's it's wild, right? Everybody talks about uh, Memphis barbecue. Um, and we definitely, definitely ate a lot of barbecue. Everybody cooked it, but like I ate a lot of um I guess you call it meat and three, um, soul food when I was coming up. Um, you know, uh fried chicken, fried fish, grilled chicken, a lot of smoked meats with um a lot of different sides. So I guess I ate the um the traditional soul food coming up and then of course like a lot of fast food because that's just you know high schoolers that's all we did right okay of course so you left um uh memphis in in, in what year so I, I left memphis in 2007 i was working at um a mom and pop hot wing spot um i wanted to kind of get out of memphis to find out who i was because in memphis i'm a memphian and that's all i am you know what i'm saying that's that's what i am and i couldn't really understand who i was outside of that so i left memphis to go to culinary school um, to take the kind of food uh, world a little seriously. Um, we went to Scottsdale, Arizona, which was nothing like Memphis. When I tell yeah, you, like, definitely, the definitely not, of you know. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Maybe only in temperature, but uh, culturally, you are in a whole different world, my friend, there. Yeah. A whole different world. It was, I had to try to find my lane out there because um, back home, you know, it's 55% African American in Memphis. I think it was like 15 in Arizona. And then like Scottsdale, it was like 3%. So it was a total culture shock going out there in Arizona. So going to school, going to culinary school, where you don't, you know, there's a big question happening right now about culinary school. Do you go? Do you not go? Is it worth the cost uh, of tuition? Uh, what was your experience? Do you think that you really benefited from going to culinary school? So um, one of the conversations that you and I have had uh, – and uh, like you, like Keith Rose, um, Dwayne Nutter, like I've always called y'all my OGs uh, and my mentors because I watched y'all from afar. Had I had a relationship where I worked for one of y'all, I wouldn't need to go to culinary school because of how much y'all learn from y'all mentors. Um, but for me, I didn't have a mentor, so it was important for me to kind of go and get a baseline to kind of understand about proper cookery proper techniques, how to put things together, learn how to do flavors. And I went to, I moved out there to go to La Cordon Bleu, but my financial aid didn't go through. And I ended up going to the community college program, which I paid 10000 for the entire program plus the associate's degree part of it. So for me, that was a lot of value in going to culinary school. Well, most people, um, I agree that, you know, unless you uh, work in a restaurant first, I don't recommend going to culinary school. Right. But, you know, you did have some experience in, in, in restaurant beforehand. So finding those values uh, or finding those cooking methods in uh, culinary school probably helped you further your career more than most who go straight from, you know, out of high school or, or have a whole nother career and then mm -hmm. head to culinary school school after that. I always recommend, you know, working in the restaurant first before you commit to spending that that type of money. You you got to know, because the restaurant industry is wild. Uh, I mean, it's wild in good ways, wild in bad ways. Um, all of those ways kind of, you know, develop who you are, develop their character or whatever. So I think you need to know that you love the industry before you go and spend 50000 trying to find out if you love the industry and then finding out you don't love the industry. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money because you really should – really have a passion for doing what we do. Um, and you don't really find that out of culinary school because culinary school for a lot of people is just like 
playing around with other people's food and other people's money. You don't really find mm-hmm. out what it is until it's your money on the line. Or um, what, what, what kind of language? Is this PG-13? I need to know how I can talk on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well, well, well you, you, it's definitely, uh, uh, I would say, PG-13, but it uh, depends on how much bourbon we have, you know, by the time we finish this conversation. But, <laughs> you know, but, but, let me, but let me ask you a different, a different uh, uh, question inside yeah. of this. Um, is that did you work while you were going to culinary school? Yeah, so crazy, right? So I was working um, when I was working at the uh, hot wing spot, Ching's Hot Wings in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, when I was working at the hot wing spot, I obviously kind of started off like everybody washing dishes or whatever. I got to a point to where financially it wasn't a good thing, so I was working at a warehouse. Um, my the reason why I picked Scottsdale is because I was getting a I was going to get a job transfer from that warehouse to another place to mm-hmm. another warehouse in the same kind of uh, vein. So I moved there on a job transfer and I was, I was, it was wow. So I went to culinary school from seven to three and I was working from 6 PM to 4 AM in the morning. And it's so crazy in Arizona. I was driving to school when I was supposed to be at work and I was driving to work when I was supposed to be at school. Cause the sun and everything kind of looks the same around that time right. in Phoenix. Um, so yes, I definitely worked and went to school, but at some point I had to figure out a way to, kind of navigated better, but I, I worked the whole time I was in school. So it's, uh, it's kind of like owning two restaurants uh, of your own right now. <laughs> you still work all, <laughs> you know, all the time. You know, I, I people ask, you, well, how do you develop a work ethic? Well, it first starts with actually working, you know, in order, yeah, <laughs> you know, in order to get that work ethic, you know. So, so you left Arizona and where did you head after that? Oh, we, I moved from Arizona. It got to a place to where I knew working for other chefs wasn't going to give me I got I, my my skill set was good and I could cook right and I knew I could cook but I needed to create. Um, so we actually her parents were in Somerville, so we lived in Somerville for two hours. I mean for two uh months and dro- we drove back and forth from Charleston to uh, Charlotte looking for jobs. And I started at a couple places while I was down in Charleston, just kind of figure out what I wanted to do. I just knew I had something to say. From mm-hmm. Charleston, we found like this hole in the wall spot in Rock Hill, twelve hundred square feet green carpet on the floors, green boots. And I was like, yeah, I can't do fine dining in here. I got to do something simple like a breakfast spot. So that's how we ended up um, doing the breakfast restaurant. And our first uh, our first original location was in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is like 20 minutes south of Charlotte. Okay, so you are bring up an interesting point about about your selection in, in restaurants because most people would not consider – uh, your first nomination was really for for the Yoke Club. Am I yep, am I correct? Yep. So most yeah, people yeah, would not consider that halt cuisine, um, right. but you still got nominated for for a Beard Award. So so tell me more about this breakfast exploration that got you nominated for a Beard Award. So I mean, I was when I think about cooking and I think about food, I think about my roots and my direct roots are my parents. So, you know, going to culinary school, I kind of learned about different techniques and different food. And then when I kind of moved back to the South, I kind of found um, Farm the Table, which is odd because my grandma and my mom and all of, they, they all ate Farm the Table. So kind of reemerging and rediscovering Farm the Table made my, gave me my impetus on how I wanted to cook. I knew going into a small town, there's no way I could cook I mean, just for like, they don't want duck. They don't want foie. Um, they they don't even really want a uh, medium rare steak, right? Um, so I knew that I was going to have to do something that allowed me to convince people to eat a little different 
And I figured breakfast was easy because if I could put butternut squash in a pancake, I can put butternut squash in anything else. But you could you could trust me with putting it in a pancake for six bucks versus me trying to sell you a composed butternut squash dish for maybe like 10 to 15 bucks. So our thought process was like that we're going to go in simple. Um, we're going to start with the, you know, the easiest meal of the day, something that everybody can get around. And we're just going to locally source stuff and we're going to cook from scratch. And that was just like the beginning baseline. And we knew that we were always going to keep building flavors and keep trying different techniques and, uh, you know, kind of bringing, bringing uh, our, our Southern palate to, uh, you know, South Carolina in a different way. Um, so, like, be clear. I thought, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I was like, yo, we're going to go. We're going to open it. I'm going to do a like, 40-seat restaurant. We're going to do, like, this high-end food, and everybody's going to love it. Everybody's going to eat it. But when we walked into the restaurant, it was like hot dogs on the, on, uh, on the grill still, like literal hot dogs sitting on the grill, ketchup. And I was like, yeah, it's no way I can be um, creative as I want to here, at least at first. So I, I think we use uh, breakfast as kind of the Trojan horse to kind of get into the food scene in Charlotte. So let's talk about this even in even further detail, because uh, one thing I, I don't believe that people understand about two things, one fried chicken, two uh, scrambling or cooking eggs, is that a proper technique is required in order to make the best of those things. It's not like you just crack an egg, scramble it, and, and put it in the hottest pan. Uh, most people, you know, will do that. And that's why they're, you know, their eggs, you can bounce off a, off a floor, you know, because they're so hard. So, so really, uh, going back to culinary school or, or going back to your grandmother's, uh, kitchens where you talked about cooking, uh, where did the, uh, the, the seeking of knowledge of techniques come from? Like, was that instilled for you from your grandmother or is that just something that you saw on television? Where did that seeking of knowledge come from? So it's weird for me, right? Like most chefs have the grandmother story um, and how, you know, they were always in the kitchens and they grew up and they kind of learned through the way. Um, then they went to culinary school. It's weird for me because I found out after I went to culinary school, how much I had been in the kitchen, how much, cause I really can't remember, uh, you know, spending time in the kitchen with my granny or whatever. But as I kind of went to culinary school, all my aunts and uncles, they're like, yeah, of course you're a chef. Like, we knew you were going to be a chef. And I was like, it's no way y'all knew I was going to be a chef. It was like, nah, like, you was always in the kitchen, always helping Granny bake, always helping with the butter rolls, the biscuits, all these things. And I was like, there's no way I was doing that. But now as I get back in, like, as I, you know, do more and try to find the roots and look through, um, you know, look to find my granny essentially through cooking, I I realized and recognized that that's something that I've always done. So um, I think for me, I'm just kind of that person, right? Like, I'm always trying to find a way to – skirt around the rules or a way to, oh, so do you have to do it like that? Or are you just saying you got to do it like that because that's the only way you know how to do it, right? So I'm always trying to, you know what I'm saying? I think chefs, essentially, all we are all counterculture, right? We're always trying to find a way to do something different or better or bigger or smaller or whatever, right? We're always trying to find a way to do different. So I think my personality led me to that. But once I got to culinary school, I saw like, hey, this, uh, this rule, um, and it's bechamel. This is milk gravy. Right. I know this, you know what I'm saying? But I didn't right. know that that's what it was. I just was putting those pieces together. So I think con- for me, connecting the dots happened in culinary school. And I realized that my granny was doing all this stuff. I just didn't know that that's what she was doing at first. Um, the standard breading procedure, you go, uh, flour, egg yolk, breadcrumbs. It's the, my granny's been doing that for years. It just was flour, buttermilk, flour. I just didn't 
I had to connect the dots to understand the technique that I had always seen my whole life. And it's funny, too, um, in commanding the price uh, for culinary school, you got all that training for free with definitely more love uh, from your right. grandmother than probably your, your instructor. A thousand and, percent. Yeah. Uh, so when you, you know, you have the Yoke Club, but you also had a series where you, you really uh, brought together a whole group of, of, of black chefs. And tell you know, us what inspired you to have that series, uh, uh, bringing all these chefs together, producing this wonderful food that everyone uh, is still waiting you know, for COVID to end so they can all get back in the same kitchen with you again. So, man, um, honestly, you know, and, I, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll more than once call you my OG and my mentor, um, you know, because I saw... First of all, I saw like uh, Joe Randall and Daryl Evans, like people who, you know, y'all talk about all the time as people to look to. They were doing Black Chef series, you know, in the 90s. You know what I'm saying? I was doing this early 2000s. So for me, it was just trying to figure out how to um, fit in the kind of puzzle that was already being built. But more than anything, um, because I didn't have a mentor until I reached out to you, until I kind of reached out to Dwayne and Keith, right? I didn't have personal mentors. I knew that that was something that I wanted to make sure I could be for the next generation of black chefs, right? I wanted to make sure that if they had questions about opening restaurants, techniques, recipes, um, decorum, what's actually supposed to happen in the kitchen versus what was going on in the kitchen, I wanted to make sure that I could be that. And I also wanted to get in the kitchens with other brothers and sisters and just be in a space where I felt comfortable and I felt loved, like how I felt in my granny's kitchen learning, um, just at a different place. Um, so we kind of started that. We started Soul Food Sessions just to really be in the same kitchen together and cook together. Once we saw it happen and we saw how good the food was and we saw how great the reception was, we realized that we could make a, a big difference in the uh, culinary community here and afar. And any reason that I get to call any people that I've looked up to for my culinary career, right? Black chefs, they say, you want to go cook? And it's like, yeah, let, yeah, let's do it. Let's cook together. Let's let's figure this out. I'm like, yo, any reason to do that is a win for me. So um, everything about Soul Food Sessions really is just about the extended family that you kind of lose when you leave home, right? Um, big brothers, uncles, cousins, big sisters, mm -hmm. mother figures. Like I found all these things in soul food sessions, working with different chefs and learning through those processes. So um, I, it, all those things is why we did soul food sessions. I mean, it really is, is great when I, I believe I saw one where it was seven courses uh, yep. and, and it's gotten to it over over nine courses. Am I am I yep. correct? And, and the first one was four courses. Right. Yep. I mean, and if anyone knows, you know, my history uh, with Chef Dwayne and Jerry Slater at the Oak Room, uh, that, you know, our, our first tasting menu was only five courses. And when we left, it was 20. So, so they're always, you know, that exploration of, of how to do things more uh, in sync and, and having me more fun, but also challenging ourselves to be better every day. And for you to be a mentor to people are at a, such a uh, still age of, of where you are is not only inspiring to most, but it's also a noteworthy story of how to uh, persevere in this restaurant business. We're going to take a small break right here and... Uh, have some sponsors come in and talk to you guys, and we'll be right back with a good friend of mine, uh, the youngin' as I call him, Chef Gregory Collier.
This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. All right, so we're back here with Chef Gregory Collier, and we were talking about his pathway from uh, from Memphis to Arizona to a little bit south of Charlotte, opening the Yolk Club uh, Soul Food Sessions. And now he's doing Leah and Louise, a, a great restaurant that opened um, at one of the most uh, strenuous times in our country's history uh, during COVID. And when were you originally set to open uh, Leah and Louise? So... We literally opened on the day that um, uh, that there was the announcement that you can only have 10 people inside the space. That was our opening day. We had uh, friends and family, media night right before that. Everything went great. People were really comfortable. Everything was fine. And then the next day, the announcement dropped. Um, so instead of opening that Friday, we ended up doing, uh, you know, carry out, take out to go. And then... Once, uh, you know, everything happened and we kind of went through our process, we got back to phase two and we opened June 12th of this year. So our opening was delayed 90 days. I mean, we had full staff. We had ordered all the food. The recipes was ready to go. The menu was great. We had everything ready to go. And then the ball dropped. We had to like completely pivot from dine-in to all carry-out, curbside, takeout. In the midst of that, we even went from doing a uh, five to nine dinner service to 12 to 7 kind of like lunch dinner service mm -hmm. family style meals like we you know we did everything to kind of pivot to try to give people the opportunity to see what we were and see what we did but nothing is like opening that restaurant and having people sitting in the space or outside on the patio um it's been a it's been a great experience to kind of see the whole thing come to fruition so you in in learning how to pivot um and certainly um understanding uh, what the menu was. So is the menu, um, when you had to pivot, was that far different from the menu that you currently were, or, you know, you were opening the next day? How quickly did you have to change the menu and make adjustments to, uh, from dine-in service to carry-out? So I think um, we're fortunate, Sabrina and I are fortunate that we've uh, been able to create a community in Charlotte of, you know, uh, chefs, restaurateurs, and even, um, you know, consumers who, customers and you know they just want to come in and support us so our first two weeks we kept the same menu we didn't change anything uh, 
it was a, obviously it was a little less refined. We're not putting micros into gold plates, and we're not doing different oils and stuff onto those. But um, we served the, the same menu, and we kind of got feedback, and we understood what it was. And a lot of people kept asking, "Are y'all gonna do family style meals?" And once that happened, you know that happened twenty or thirty times. I'm like, "Well, yeah, we're doing family style meals." So we did family style meals, and then we even went to. You know, one of the discussions that we had about looking at so, looking at soul food and not necessarily saying, well, I got to refine soul food. It's, it's, it doesn't need to be refined. We could just present it in a way and, and um, add that technique, like you said, with frying chicken, um, doing fried fish. My fried fish recipe is essentially the same fried fish recipe in the soul cookbook with a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of tweaks or whatever. But um, like we did that. And then we even did like on Sundays, we did like celebration suppers to where we would do uh fish and spaghetti or we do fried chicken with barbecue field peas or whatever. So um, we shifted as much as the clientele wanted us to shift. Um, we did donut days where one of my, my patient chef would just come in and do different types of donut per the season. So um, we shifted as much as we could shift with the understanding that at some point we were going to have to go back to what we initially started with so um for example we had uh we got oxtail and dumplings on the menu right it's, uh, oxtail with red rice collars we took that same oxtail uh stew cooked the liquid down and we made oxtail tacos um for lunch when we flipped so we kind of kept a lot of the same ingredients on the menu we just changed the way we put them out and gave them to people so from a financial standpoint and i'm, I'm sure listeners are going to be curious about this uh that you know, you're expecting to have a certain average check. Uh, you definitely said you already hired all the, the labor uh, that you needed for the restaurant. You already had food in it um, and not revealing too much of the inner circles of the business. But how much did it pivot, um, you know, cost you in general from what you budgeted to? And then how you know, do you feel about the recovery uh, from that now with phase two? Uh, being reopened and just give a little listeners a, a, a understanding phase one w- was when you uh, Charlotte said shut everything down and you only have 10 people in phase two open it up for more dining services right so um so phase one happened and obviously it was devastating for everybody who um had a restaurant was opening a restaurant um I, I and I guess this is just us trying to find a silver lining we never knew how much we really could do so we hadn't opened and we hadn't had, um, you know, 100 covers a night. Like, so we really never understood how busy we could be. So, at, you know, we opened a restaurant. A lot of people overhired. We kind of underhired because I felt like a lot of my salary positions could kind of, you know, find out what they could fit in and what they could do different to kind of help us from a labor uh, perspective. And also to kind of say, well, listen, if y'all want to make, you know, salary, find out things that you could do and be more beneficial. So from that standpoint, we started at a better place than some places. The interesting thing about it was we went from our first day we opened, we did like uh not nothing crazy. We got 50 seats. We did like 2000 bucks. So that's essentially like a $40 per person check average at 50 seats, right? Um, the next week, that same day, we dropped by um, 66%. So we did a $2,000 day on a Friday. It's $2,500 on a Saturday. And then next weekend, we did like 700 bucks. Um, so I was like, wow, like. That's what gave me the impetus to kind of understand that we needed to change the menu, right? Um, because people didn't, people weren't looking for fine dining. People were looking for smoked chicken, two sides, uh, and four biscuits, right? They needed food to feed um, a family at home. So that's one thing. 
I think the second thing uh, to understand is if I got people on salary, right? You know, my sous chef's making uh, you know, around forty thousand or whatever. I have to figure out, you know, whether I can afford to pay them that. And my quick understanding was we couldn't afford to pay them that. Um, uh, Uptown Yoke, our breakfast restaurant, that was that's in a food hall. You've been in, right? The whole food hall shut down. So we couldn't operate Uptown Yoke even if we wanted to operate Uptown Yoke. So we had to let everybody know, hey, look, we're not going to be able to do that. One of the things we did at Uptown Yoke was we reached out to a nonprofit that was already trying to figure out how to feed people. So they raised money. Um, they raised money. We worked with um, U.S. Foods. They actually provided food for um, donated food for free. We did uh, bre- 200 breakfasts five days a week out of Uptown Yoke for this community um, through an organization called Hill Charlotte. So one of the things we pivoted on the, at the breakfast restaurant, we were able to do um, a thousand um, breakfasts a week and pay two of our staff members, our my, my kitchen manager and my front of the house manager over there for. I want to say two months at Lee and Louise, we did some frontline food stuff. So, I mean, we, we, one of the things that, uh, that uh, allowed us to pay people was kind of, you know, reaching out and paying, uh, you know, making meals for the frontline workers and communities. Uh, and that allowed us to pay people. We're really lucky at both restaurants. We were able to get PPP, PPP loans. Um, uh, and most, and a lot of people couldn't get them. And we also lucky at Lee and Louise that almost, I had one staff member that didn't get unemployment. And I mean, full 100% unemployment with the $600 and everything. So we were very lucky in both situations to be able to have relationships um, to where we could, you know, pay our employees through charity and, you know, reach out to the community and feed the community as well. So we were just fortunate in that way that um, financially we stayed at an okay place. On the other side of this, it's going to be interesting because right now we're at about, 75% 75% of what we projected we were going to be able to do last uh last month my labor cost was just like 50%. Um that was it, that is devastating for a restaurant at 50%. Insane cuz your yeah, prime cost was supposed to be 60%, right? right? So my labor alone was at 50%. Like yeah. I mean we had a meeting and I kind of I was like, you know, wait like we like this is not <laughs> well, I'm not going to say what I said in that meeting but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> once we I mean once we had a conversation and kind of figured out some things we were for fifty percent um, last month. Currently, we're at thirty five percent, which is a huge uh, drop from you know fifty percent. And we're working on some things to kind of get that closer to thirty percent. But it's just crazy to try to figure out because the project the projections don't mean anything. We well, can have they never have right. and they never <laughs> they usually never will. Um, they mean nothing. You can guess <laughs> at it, but you like fifteen points. We should, you know what I mean? We were 15 points off. And I think people don't understand that when we're talking about, you know, people coming in for reservations and not canceling and um, tipping well. All those things are important, regular restaurant industry. But right now, it's so important for people to come in for their reservations and not cancel because if I'm thinking we're going to do 80, uh, 100 people, my staff is set up to do 80 people. So if we drop off to 40 people, I got to figure out what to do because now I got managers there that I don't need to have. I got buses there that I don't need to have. So all like it's important for everybody to, you know. Let me let me, let me interject here and just ask uh-huh. you uh, another another quick question. We got about five minutes left here. Um, um, you know, you, you mentioned labor costs, uh, food costs, uh, you know, rents, everything else. Uh, but in that, I did not hear you say anything about necessarily cooking. Uh, 
And, and, and one thing that I believe is the biggest fallacy about what chefs actually do when they get to your level, uh, my level, or anyone who is an owner of a restaurant, that cooking really becomes one of the last things that you have to consume yourself with. How do you manage the time um, in between uh, cooking and actually operating the business? And Chef Blunt, one of the, uh, you know, every time we talk or we get together, the conversation is about, um, you know, we talk about flavors, we talk about technique, we talk about, um, you know, plates, and we talk about different things, but we really talk about running the business because, um, like you said, the fallacy is that we just get to come in to work, you know, cook with, play with a lot of different food and do all these techniques and, you know, just have fun and kind of, you know, smack so, in the kitchen. You know, talk to the just farmers, like, talk to the... Right, go to the farmer's yeah. markets in the morning, kind of skip around with our uh, burlap bags, but that, <laughs> that ain't what it is, you know what I mean? Like, I usually get to work, and we open at 5 p.m. I usually get to work at 9 a.m. I'm probably, I come in, I cut everything on, kind of see what the prep's looking like, and then I go pull out my laptop. I'm usually on my laptop responding to emails, um, looking at numbers, um, you know, trying to put out fires, doing projections for the day, for the week, for the hour even, right? Um, and then I probably don't actually start cooking until about 1. But about 1, I cook. my sous chef comes in, we talk about things. And then a couple hours later, my junior sous comes in and we talk about stuff. But I don't really, more than it, I probably taste more food um, than I actually cook. Um, and then I'm on a computer until like 4.30, we do line up and then I'm exploring and I do a little cooking from five to nine, but more than anything, I'm just kind of executing the stuff that we've already cooked to prepare or that my crew's already cooked to prepare. Like I spend, and that's what's crazy. As you grow, you cook less. As you get kind of up in ranks or whatever, when you go from, you know, sous chef to CDC to executive chef, you cook a lot less. I cook now I try to cook at home a little bit, but even cooking at home uh, today, like I'm doing, a, you know, I'm honored to be on the podcast with y'all. My wife was just on the podcast earlier. After we get done with this, we're probably going to go to Lowe's and fix some stuff at the restaurant. I'm not, I'm not going to cook anything uh, over the next couple of days. So I, I, I love cooking. Cooking is my passion. But what I realize more is feeding people is my fas- passion, not necessarily cooking. And, um, you know, mentoring and trying to educate people is also more of a passion. And I can't be a mentor if I don't run a good business. Absolutely. And and I know that you have uh, some uh, great recipes in your head and and great food in your head, but also developing people to cook those is probably the most uh, difficult job or unsung job that that people think that uh, chefs naturally have to do. But because we manage so many things at one given time, it might be, uh, you know, just misconstrued that we have the, all this free time in the world, which we we do not. And the last, you know, final, you know, question here. I just want to, uh, you know, briefly ask you about is really, you know, what is the future? And, and I want to kind of, you know, you know, force this question this way: is what is the future of, of opening more restaurants with a husband and wife team, in which you all? Both are now consumed with this one project, and, and where does the separation, you know, come back, uh, or, or are you even allowed to separate you, yourselves from from the restaurant at all? I think the thing, um, Sabrina and I have been fortunate, and I keep saying it, we've been fortunate to have, um, as we grow in the industry, a lot of husband and wife couples who are in the restaurant industry and just. 
um, who just are able to help us take steps or help us understand how to decompress from the restaurant. When we first opened, I didn't see a vacation. There's no way. We've been open for Leah and Luis. We've been open, um, I say since March, but we've gone and taken vacations. And vacations could be nothing but driving down to Atlanta to hang out for a couple days, uh, driving up to Wilmington to hang out for a couple days. It's not really like we're on the beach or all the hotel rooms or anything. It's just like driving for a couple days and going, you know, hanging out with friends and family just to kind of decompress from the restaurant. I think that's one of the biggest things that we've learned is that we love what we do. I'm always thinking about restaurants. I'm always thinking about growing. So for one one side of it, as we've gotten older, I think we learn more about who uh, who we are as individuals. So when we go to restaurants and we think about building, we kind of think, hey, Sabrina, what do you want to do with the restaurant world? Hey, babe, Chase, hey, Greg, what do you want to do with the restaurant world, right? So we ask ourselves those questions individually and collectively, for one. And for two, as far as the future of restaurants goes, um, everything that we're thinking about doing now is – um, I want to. I want not quick service, but um, in the in the grain of quick service, fast, casual, being able to cook a great product consistently for a mass amount of people without having to have them be in my space the whole time. Another thing we're thinking about is the next project we got going on. We're gonna have a patio space, right? The pat. It's gonna be a huge patio space that's able to be seat people. For four seasons, and that's going to be our dining area. We're Absolutely. not necessarily thinking about doing a bunch of seats on the inside. We're we're automatically thinking patio seating, six feet spaced apart. If I can add seats, if you know, in two years, everything's great. Everybody wants to sit next to each other again. Great, we can add seats. But we're thinking about right now. Um, we're operating like everything is going to be phase one from here on out. So if we can adjust, we can always adjust to add more seats. So we can adjust to add more menu. We can adjust to add more refinement, but it's hard to go from extremely refined 30 seats where everybody's sitting at the same table together to try to make that uh, make sense where now you can only sit five people at the same table to set 30 seats. So we're looking at everything like we're, you know, like we're in phase one. I mean, definitely the math, you know, doesn't add up when you have to construct a restaurant that way. Uh, we don't know when it's going to change, and certainly, and certainly in this political climate, uh, we don't know if it is going to change until after the election. Uh, would you tell everyone where they can find you on social media? All right, boo. So on Facebook and Instagram, uh, you can find us at Uptown Yoke um, for the breakfast spot. Um, Leah and Louise CLT on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. And then my personal is Chef Greg Collier 10 um, on Instagram, Gregory Collier on Facebook, Soul Food Session CLT on Instagram and Facebook. And at some point, I'm going to try to figure out how to get uh, Todd and the crew together so we can, you know, cook some good food for the people again. I just, I know you busy. You just, just opened a barbecue spot. How, how y'all doing there, by the way? It, it, it is great. Uh, we talk good. about having a patio. Yeah. We have 60 seats on our patio. And yeah. Yeah. I, it, yeah. it, it is, it is great. Um, but, you know, we are uh, growing as well. And we're looking forward as well to have you down here to do our, our chef series here. Um you know, uh, and it's really great on the patio to see it, uh, see it in its fruition. Well, my friend, no more, no more of a youngin. I, I think you might, <laughs> you might get into that, not OG, you might get to that G category right now. <laughs> you, you know? 
not that OG category, you know, yet you got to get a little more aches and pains uh, when you get up and out the bed, you know, in order to, to get to the OG category. So, well, but, listen, uh, once y'all triple OGs, then I can be an OG. So y'all got to get to the triple, then well, I can go up to the OG spot. Hey, you know, you know, what, what did uh, – uh, Dar said, you know, you know, I was once the student, but now I'm the master, you know, so yep, that, yep. that's the way to be. Uh, uh, give your best to 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 your wife, the, the best of the of, of the two, just like mine is, as you all know. 100%. And I thank Gregory Collier for coming on Soul by Todd Richards. And I look forward to talking to everyone soon. Thank you very much. Peace. Soul by Todd Richards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please, Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.